Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We're here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. You can find us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Patreon. And please rate and review us on iTunes. And join us on Patreon. And if you sign up on Patreon, you get all sorts of extra goodies and bonus content. Actually, you get an extended interview from this very episode. And to do that, you just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And every second Wednesday of the month, we do a live taping of the show at the Brooklyn Commons. This month, we have our next live show, January 11th at 7 p.m. at the Brooklyn Commons at 388 Atlantic Avenue. The theme will be the media under Trump. And our special guests will be Abby Martin, a journalist and creator of The Empire Files, a weekly investigative news program on Telesur English, Mike Preisner, the producer and co-writer of The Empire Files, and Nando Villa, a correspondent from Fusion. So don't forget, come out, buy yourself some nosh, some snacks, some drinks. It's always a great time. I'm here, as always, with my main man, my man, Gabe Pacheco, very funny stand-up comedian. Hey, what's going on? I'm back in town. I'm so excited to be here, Katie. So excited. You and know? we've, we've, yeah, I'm excited for you. You are? We're You're both, excited for me? I'm excited for you, yeah. Perfect. We, if you could see us now, listeners, we're like shaking. Deep eye contact. Deep eye contact. Shake, rattle, and roll. Mm-hmm. We're moving and grooving. I love it when we're grooving, to, cruising together. We're moving and grooving and cruising. Well, you know, hopefully if, uh, if things go, the, 2017 is going to be a big year and hopefully we'll get on the road. We'll get to do some live shows. Yes, guys, book us. Bring us to your colleges. We can take a, we'll take a, a, a road trip. To your college. Take it easy. <laughs> I'm just really bringing everything to the to the art of song today. And it's not even road trip. It's slow ride. Yeah. Ever since we talked about going to the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, remember Ben Jealous said- He told us we free- could both get a free ride. Yes. And it's like Katie and Gabe go to, go to grad school. I love it. It's so earnest. Back to school. Back to school. It's like very 1980s earnest goes to whatever. It, or like, a, it's like, a, what's the movie with Rodney Dangerfield, Back to School, oh, yeah. and Sam Kinison's his teacher. Oh, wow. What is that? Uh, it's called Back to School. It is called Back to School. That's oh, my it. God. So, Soul Man, that's another great Back to School. <laughs> Definitely, the, let's reenact Soul Man. Oh, the most unfortunate. Uh, well, I can't believe that they really tried. Blackface in the yeah. 80s. Pre-Rachel Dolezal. They were they were the real free, they were the real ones who broke the color line. Yeah. They should be in civil rights uh history books. Sure. Well, maybe we'll get to what is it when you go to school and you get to teach uh uh like at Berkeley, a student-led class uh-huh. and we could teach a class on w- using Soul Man. Yeah. As a problem problematic blackface. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to the unproblematic blackface. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole genre of literature. But we have a great show for you today. I'm going to be talking to Doug Henwood and playing an interview that we did with him. And he, as you probably know, is a writer and radio show host. Um, and we go over the narratives that need to die and the blame game and why it is that everyone who should be blamed is actually blaming other people. A lot of guilty finger pointing. A lot of guilty. A lot. A lot of this. And not a lot of this. Now, for radio show listeners, you can't see what I'm doing. But when I say this the first time, I'm pointing outwards. And when I say not enough of this, I'm pointing a thumb at myself. Sort of, yeah, sort of like a symbolic representation for for self-reflection. Exactly. Thank you so much, Doug Henwood, for talking to me. We're doing this special. I have a couple of names I'm considering for it. Maybe like in defense of the blame game or let's play the blame game or um, in defense of recriminations. Well, the people who... Uh, deserve the blame, never want to play the blame game. Exactly. But not only that, it's actually way more perverse and entitled than that. The people who should be blamed play the blame game, but it's a it's a self-exonerating blame game. Oh, yes. Well, they're always blaming someone else. But I hear a lot of people also saying, uh, well, it's time to move on. You know, we need to fight together. Well, no, actually not, because you don't really know what you're doing unless you understand what happened. I feel like you and I both have a bit of a mischievous side where we enjoy being able to point out to people who were cocky and condescending and entitled and enabling that they were wrong. There's some joy to that, but I'm going to be real. I would have preferred uh, Donald Trump losing and my inability to say you were wrong, Clintonites. Like, I'm not a, that bad of a person. I'm not that vindictive. But there's also a really important part of the story, which you just alluded to, which is that it's not just, it's not some like fun game. It's actually taking stock of what happened in order to be able to move forward productively. And I find it so hard to compl- to explain this to people. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. It's like, if we go along with the same narrative that allowed Trump to become president, 
then if we keep that narrative, of course we're not going to be able to push back against this agenda or prevent more Trumps from cropping up. A lot of liberals and Democrats want to blame bigots. You know, it's, it's white male bigots, they're responsible for everything. Okay, I'm not sure that's empirically true. It's partly true, at least. But so what then? What do you do about that? Are they just incurably bigoted and you just wait for several decades till the demography changes? Or do you try to do something that will distract from or heal the bigotry? And I don't hear any Democrats, you know, mainstream Democrats, liberals, you know, ranging, I don't know, from Amanda Marcotte to Chuck Schumer, let's say, uh, who have any constructive suggestions along those lines. It's just all or a bunch of, you know, homophobes and xenophobes and gynophobes, but they're just all bad people. Okay, maybe they are, but what do we do about it? Do we just live with it? I don't understand. Please tell me. And I've been trying to get some kind of answer to that question via social media, which is perhaps not the best route, but, you know, I'm not getting anything. Nothing. It's not even answers I disagree with. It's just zero. Silence. So there's two issues, right? One is a kind of moral, ethical framework of how we see people who one would maybe describe as bigoted, and let's just say, yeah, they're bigoted, right? There's, there's two issues, I think. One is whether or not we see them as, as whether or not we have any empathy towards them, right? A lot of liberals have this, like, empathy um, disclaimer, right, where it doesn't apply to people who are poor whites, basically. And everyone else deserves empathy and a kind of structural analysis that explains why they're thinking the way that they are, right? You see this, for instance, with hip-hop or, you know, misogyny. I'm not saying that these things are unique to those to that community, but there's a lot of discussion about understanding why certain communities have more pronounced, let's say, phobias or isms, right, than another one. But when it comes to white working class people, it's it's just like we become conservatives. We're like totally draconian and vindictive and there's no room for structural analysis. And in fact, that stuff gets laughed at. I mean, liberals love using economic anxiety as a punchline, right? So there's that issue. But the other issue which you're referring to is basically like, okay, and 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 what? So let's say they are terrible garbage people, trash. I don't view them that way, but let's say we, we think that they are, okay? Don't we still need them to be voting for the non-racist? Yeah, and they deserve health care, too. <laughs> well, right. So, like, exactly. I agree. But but I'm more frustrated by the people who don't even think they deserve health care. Yeah. Right? Well, there's so that odious they... thing of the Daily Coast where he said, you know, all you Kentucky coal miners are losing your, your health insurance. Good. You deserve it. Like, really. Not very that constructive. Just... But, but how come we're the ones who are blamed for being non-constructive, counterproductive. I mean, like you said, the options for not dealing with, for just writing off these people as racists or bigots, the option is waiting for de demographic shift, which is pretty privileged if you think that you can sacrifice these many people for this long. Decades we're talking about. Yeah, right? First of all, it's not how you politically organize. Like, if you want to position yourself as a person who's a, a, an intellectual and a self-indulgent intellectual, maybe, I mean, you're but don't pretend you're actually a political organizer because no political organizer has been like, I'm, it's not on me right. to educate them. It's not on me to cater to these people. It's not up to me to educate you, right? Yeah, and you know what? This is terrible, but you know what this election proved? Yeah, it was. It really is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. You hear these heartwarming stories every now and then. Like, for example, a friend of mine posted something to Facebook earlier about some uh, alliance, and I don't know the details of it, and I want to find out more, but an alliance between striking chemical workers in upstate New York and some members of a local mosque who are under siege by local bigots, and they came together, and, like, they joined forces. Uh, there was a story uh, after George Michael's death of uh, an alliance between lesbians and gays and the striking coal miners in England in 1984-ish. You know, th there are stories like this. It can happen. So we need to figure out how these things happen and try to reproduce them instead of jumping up and down in our soapbox and feeling superior to everyone else. Right. Because it doesn't... The big takeaway is, like, it doesn't actually help the people. Like, the people who are... Again, for argument's sake, if I only care about non-straight white men, let's just say for argument's sake, like it's not good for them to not address the stuff that will make people realize it's not in their best interest to vote for Trump. Like that's the most self-indulgent thing and petulant. All these things that they said about us are true about them. Solidarity seems both ethically demanded, but also a very practical thing to aspire to. That's a great, that's a great line. I love that. Solidarity, not just ethical, but practical. Yeah. yeah. Why do we have to explain these things to people? Like coalitions? I thought everyone knew this. The, I mean, Democratic, the Democratic elite ran on entitlement. 
it was my turn, her turn, and you should vote for us uh, if you know it's good for you. They never really felt the need to persuade. And then the only exercise in persuasion was, I'm not Trump, he's terrifying, he's a bad person. What do I have to offer you, you know, positively? Not much was on offer. We just saw the Hillary campaign veering all over the place between running against social democracy, you need skin in the game, nobody gets anything for free in America, and then suddenly she has a, a college tuition program. But it's never anything coherent, powerful, or you know, easily summarizable in a good slogan. You need good slogans. But you know, then we thought, oh, well, at least they have the political skills to get out the vote, they understand data analysis, but they didn't even do that. So they blew it on every possible uh, measure. One of my favorite headlines was um, from the Daily Mail, I think, and it was Bill Clinton so enraged after a fight about reaching out to the working to working class whites that he threw his cell phone from the, the terrace of his Little Rock penthouse. Yes, there's a penthouse on top of the Clinton Library, which uh, supposedly, according to the right wing press, is where he has all his trysts. All right. Sounds, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's the way to my heart. A, a penthouse on top of a library? Like, it's pretty good. It's where I get the intellectual girls. Has there been any evidence that anyone has kind of taken stock of what happened and why people lost and has been like, okay, you're right, we've learned from this? I have seen absolutely none of that. And my um, attentiveness to, uh, you know, the Hillary literature has receded somewhat because I've just got sick of that and it became irrelevant. But, you know, I still do pay attention and I really haven't seen much in the way of any kind of serious postmortem. And I see a lot of defensiveness, a lot of finger pointing elsewhere, uh, but no interest in looking inwards. And, you know, I just, uh, I quite, don't quite understand why. Presumably these people want to win elections, they want power, they're driven by ambition and narcissism, they want to be loved and they all want to win. Yet they're not showing any signs of wanting to do those things. Now, the Democratic Party does have this structural problem. It is a party of business that has to pretend otherwise for electoral reasons sometimes. So that's what produces all this, you know, the weakness and the, uh, the confusion in their message and such. But, you know, just in purely partisan terms, you look at the Republican Party. These people know how to play hardball. They know they want to win and they will stop at nothing. And they are reprehensible and odious people. But they really do have that instinct to fight, and Democrats don't. And, you know, I, I, there is that structural issue where their loyalties are so divided it's hard for them to speak with one voice. But on the other hand, just in purely partisan terms or personal ambition terms, why are they not trying to figure out what went wrong and do something serious to address it? So look, look at this fight now over uh, uh, the head of, who's going to be the head of the DNC, uh, over who will succeed uh, um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazile at the head of the DNC. And uh, you've got Keith Ellison, who's in many ways a very promising figure, uh, and then being challenged by Tom Perez and a few others. Perez uh, is a guy who wanted to race bait Bernie Sanders, but now he's running you know, against the black Muslim guy uh, on some kind of white identitarian grounds. It makes no sense at all, but it just seems like ruthless Clintonite ambition. And he one, was in the Department of Labor. Yeah, he's the he Labor DOL. Secretary under uh, Obama. Uh, soon not to be, uh, to be replaced by a fast food executive. Uh, and <laughs> God, it's, just, it's all so grim. But Ellison has this uh, idea of remaking the party from the ground up and uh, registering people to vote, rebuilding the party at the base. And the Democratic Party is in dreadful shape. You know, they just lost a presidential election, but they are pretty competitive at the presidential level. But they're doing dismally awful at the state and local level. Uh, aside from a few big cities, which are just going to be democratic till the end of the world, uh, the, the, the state legislatures, the governorships, they're losing like crazy. The, the Republicans are very close to being controlling enough states that they could pass constitutional amendments at will. That's how dire it is. So there's a very, very serious rot from the bottom of this party. Democrats were very complacent about it during the campaign. They kept talking about At least about something's the... bottom up for the Democrats. <laughs> yes. It's the rot. The rot, yes. It's like termites, you know, eating the house from within. It's about to collapse. But they are so convinced there's a dumpster fire. The party's in meltdown. Da, 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 da. No, it's the, the, the party in meltdown is their own. Uh, and so Ellison has at least a strategy for rebuilding from the bottom up. Perez is a top-down kind of guy, a very elitist, Clintonite kind of guy. You know, he pretends to be very pro-labor, but you know, not really. Uh, we now just parenthetically see the Service Employees Union, which has been a very important part of the Democratic coalition, about to cut its budget by a third. We're under attack, so we're going to cut our budget. It makes no sense at all. But I think they want to save their money for more electoral campaigns. 
all the efforts to rebuild uh, any kind of movements. The fight for 15, which had its problems, but it was something. Uh, uh, they, they seem to be pulling back from that. Uh, so you have this thing that just cannot organize any kind of base, any kind of foundation for rebuilding this party in any way. But I think the problem is that they see that it's a, there's a real deep ideological contradiction. To do this, they have to pursue very kinds of social democratic or populist policies that the leadership of the party and its funders want no part of. So here we are, the Democrats are caught in that fundamental contradiction of their existence. They have to be a business party that pretends not to be. And now I think the game in which they've been playing some con game for the last several decades, which in the years they became a neoliberal party, they've been playing this con game. I think that game has run out and they really don't know what to do. So let's say you were working at the DNC. Oh, and by the way, I don't know why people are passionate about Perez. And I mean, for this is clearly in large part right a proxy war because uh, Ellison was was one of the few Congress people to come out for Sanders, and Sanders has endorsed Ellison as DNC chair, and also uh, he had appointed him to the Democratic Platform Draft Committee. Jennifer Jennifer Granholm is like, no games. If you like Bernie Sanders, then you're gonna love Tom Perez. <laughs> yeah, like, right. No. <laughs> what? Wait, you don't you really think that that's going to fly like like no games. You should definitely support the guy that Sanders didn't endorse against the guy who Sanders did endorse. She's been like tweeting, tweeting nonstop about how great Perry. No, it's enough to make you believe that Freud had a point when he talked about the death wish. There, there seems to be some kind of almost deep, fundamental suicidal impulse that's taken over the party. And you look, stand back and look at it. They are just not equipped to fight Trump. You know, they, they underestimated this guy consistently. This is the guy who destroyed the establishments of two parties. He is simple-minded, brutal, revolting. You know, I'm not going to deny any of those things, but he is clever in a way. And he knows what he's doing. And he's appointed an administration that is frightfully competent. These people know what they're doing. They have an agenda. They're very well connected for the most part. And they want to do terrible things. And there's, it's hard to see where the, any opposition to them is going to come from. It's going to take radicals in the streets to pre pre uh, present any kind of challenge to these people because the mainstream of the Democratic Party, elected officials, whatever, are just not up to the task. They just are, they have their heads so far up that they, they, they can't even see the light of day. So let's say you're working for um, the DNC, or let's say you're an, organ an organizer. What would you say are the important takeaways from this election that you would want to bring into the future? For, so let's say you are elected DNC head. What are the things that you'd say, because A, B, C, D happened, we have to do one, two, three, four. And as an, if you were an organizer, what would you do? And, and, and kind of the converse of that is, what are the things that are dangerous takeaways that you see people making that would be destructive in terms of organizing and winning elections? Well, I think the destructive thing would be to continue in the same uh course of raising lots of money from rich people and uh, Wall Street, which is what you know, Hillary did that. She spent the month, month of August talking to billionaires instead of going to Wisconsin uh, to the VFW. And it's very funny to watch Obama trolling her now about uh, <laughs> what a miserable campaign she ran. Uh, but uh, what they would have to do, and I really doubt, of course, that they would do this, given the, the structure of American politics and uh, the Democratic Party specifically, but what they have to do is wean themselves from elite funding and uh, adopt the Sanders model of small contributions. Uh, it was, you know, raised a ton of money in a very short period of time. Guy came out of nowhere uh, and ended up running a very credible campaign uh, based on grassroots funding because he was very appealing and had, he was saying things that people wanted to hear. So that's one thing. You need to break away from the elite funders and recast the funding. Be something like a membership organization, a real political party in the sense that it is in other parts of the world. And then you have to have a message that appeals to people. Some very basic social democratic things that will make people's lives better. A single-payer healthcare system, you know, free college tuition, all the kinds of things that, that Sanders uh, harped on. And I, I think simplicity of message is really important, too. You know, Sanders had four or five points he'd make over and over again. People made fun of him for it. But that is really how you win in politics. You know, most people are not intellectuals. They don't follow uh, uh, political campaigns that carefully, political issues that carefully. But if you hammer away at several things that they get convinced will make their lives better and excite them emotionally, then you can win elections. So I think that just a very simple social democratic platform, higher minimum wage, better labor law, anti-discrimination measures. But I think it's also really important to emphasize the universal. We're all in this together. And like stop the micro-targeting. Uh, a lot of what people criticize as identitarian politics. Um, you know, some of it is about 
ending discrimination and bigotry, and those are all very good things. But some of it comes out of marketing. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're micro-targeting populations and certain demographics. That's not really what we need in politics. We need some sense that we're all in this together and that an injury to one is an injury to all. All these classic old ideas that came out of the labor movement and left-wing politics seem very relevant to the present. You know, all, a lot of people say all that old stuff just doesn't fit this world. I don't really understand that at all. I think it really does. We need it more than ever. Uh, people are fright, frightened. We have a climate crisis. We have all kinds of things that should uh, make us want to huddle together, fight together instead of fighting each other. And that kind of Sanders approach to politics and financing politics, I think, is, is precisely what we need on a large scale from, you know, city council races in every city in the country all the way up to the office of president. It just seems absolutely imperative to, to, to shift to that kind of model and away from this, you know, consultant-driven, uh, money-driven politics that the Hillary campaign really embodied and her failure, even though she, she won the popular vote, we can't, you know, we should remember that she did win the popular vote. So there is no mandate for Trumpism. But, you know, because of our electoral college, because of the idiocy of our political system, She's not going to be taking the oath of office in a few weeks. And that failure seems to be really symptomatic of the failure of that whole approach to politics. But I don't see Democrats uh, drawing that conclusion yet. Of course, she won the popular vote. I mean, I don't even know, honestly, how much the mandate issue matters. Like, I... Well, Bush didn't have one. He acted like he did, though. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like if anyone doesn't care about that, it's Trump. And yeah. no one on the no random person cares about that or even knows what that means. I mean, so much of the discussion is a discussion that we're having amongst ourselves. The difference is we acknowledge that we're a mandate like, is what you get on Grinder, I think. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, you you just brought something up because one of the myths that I hear a lot is that, oh, Sanders was selling selling you know, like a snake oil salesman, not enough details in his programs. And you're a finance person, right? Your background's in finance. Economics, um, finance, yeah. Economics, finance. See, I'm, I'm so into that. Uh, <laughs> I'm such a, an expert. But you're, that's your background, and you're smart about that stuff. And what's your response to the claim that it was impossible, it never could have happened financially? What do you have to say to that? Well, that's not the thing that political campaigns are about. Political campaigns are about broad principles and uh, um, of, you know, assembling coalitions. Uh, and the details can be handled later. The details of financing single-payer are not that complicated. You know, plenty of countries that have done it. Canada, a similar country very similar to ours, uh, has done it. You know, the, the same thing with free college. I mean, you can offer the principle, the details can be worked out later. People who want details are just trying to cause trouble and, and so doubt. But campaigns are not for position papers. Hillary had position papers. She had no principles. Uh, and I think if you're going to have a choice between principles and position papers, you should always go with principles. What's the worst example of someone who's blamed the wrong person? Like, for instance, um, Rachel Maddow blamed third-party voters, so did Joy Reid. Krugman blamed, called Jill Stein the nader of this election. Who are some of your favorite um, delusional people? <laughs> well, I think my favorite is uh, Paul Krugman, possibly because I expect more from him. You know, the winner of the Bank of Sweden Prize in Economic Science. Uh, colloquially known as the Nobel. Although Kissinger got a Nobel Peace Prize. So we yes, yes, yes. No, it's um, I, I, yeah, no, very large grains of salt or multiple grains yeah. of salt. But, I mean, yeah. he's supposedly a serious intellectual uh, and uh, not just, uh, you know, a hack on MSNBC. And he actually blamed a conspiracy between Putin and Comey. Uh, just like, are you kidding me? What is wrong with you? How can you possibly believe that? I mean, he's just devolved into such a ludicrous character. Um, maybe I'm betraying my own um, snobbery, or maybe I'm too easily impressed by academic credentials, but I think that somebody like Paul Krugman should do better than accuse the director of the FBI essentially of treason in delivering the election to Donald Trump. It was just a remarkable moment. Uh, but he carries on like that. He hasn't stopped. That's how they get you. It's like Samuel Huntington's at Harvard, so that's why he could do the Clash of Civilizations. Like, it's very stupid. And if someone who taught at a community college wrote something like that, people would laugh him, <laughs> you know, out of the room or whatever. What do you say about the Comey thing? Because that's one of the few things where I think that, I mean, I think so many of the excuses, the blame the third party, blame Bernie, blame Bernie bros, they have nothing, like no standing. The Comey thing does present to me, again, it's something she should have been immune to, but... 
But Tommy is weird, you know, I have to say, uh, why he wrote that letter in the last few days of the campaign. Very, very strange. But on the other hand, you know, she hadn't set up a secret email server. The whole issue never would have come up. And, you know, people say, oh, who cares about the emails? No, they came out of something that is deep within Hillary Clinton. The secretiveness, uh, the duplicity, the desire to avoid scrutiny. So it, uh, the timing of Comey's um, correspondence was very strange. But on the other hand, you know, there's almost an element of a, a classic tragedy here. She was undone by her own tragic flaw. I think so, too. The other thing that really annoyed me about this campaign was all of a sudden it wasn't like the rules didn't apply. All of a sudden, you don't have to have charisma. You don't have to be a good politician, a good candidate. It's all about what, like you said, it's the it's the entitlement. It's what she deserves. And I actually, as you know, we've talked about this. I'm more sympathetic to her than most people who have my political outlook in that I do see there's something really unfair like why can't she get something why can't she be just as entitled as every other straight white male in politics and but I didn't support her for that reason I my, was talking to someone they're like well it's not her fault that, that she's not a natural politician I'm like sure but it also means that she shouldn't be the nominee or the candidate right like all of a sudden for the first time ever we expect Americans to be voting based on like serious critique policy and not at all on the way that politician comes across well i mean she used to send out these uh, like press emails endorsed by 100 nobel prize winners Look, who cares about that when you're running against a moron like trump a skilled moron like trump then all the nobel prize winners in the world are not going to help you that's not something that moves people you know she's also married to one of the greatest politicians of our time right so he was masterful at it and uh the the contrast does not serve her well uh she's very smart she's very skilled she knows a lot about everything. I can't take that away from her. But she just didn't have that, um, the, uh, the political skills that to, to sell her message. Uh, it's interesting what Biden said recently, that in some sense, her heart really wasn't in it. She, like, she, she did feel like it was her turn, but she didn't have a really underlying justification for why she was running other than that. And uh, I don't think she and Biden necessarily liked each other very much. It's clear that she and Obama don't like each other very much. But I think there's something to that, that there was none of that kind of passion that actually drives someone who is a successful politician. And also that kind of, um, I don't know, one of the, I think Bill Clinton's um, unruly libido probably has something to do with his skill as a politician. Uh, you know, there is a passion to him that allows him to connect with people that just didn't didn't work with her. And I know it's far more problematic for a woman to exude that kind of libido. I understand that. But, you know, it is a problem in a political candidate not to have that exuberance, that sociability uh, that, you know, are really prerequisites for being a politician. Right. It's pro it's somewhat chicken and egg probably too, right? I think he's more charismatic and passionate. So that also makes him more successful with women, blah, blah, blah. But I think that another interesting thing is that it's funny how all these people who are saying Bernie couldn't have won because he's a Jew would find it very offensive and problematic to say, no, we shouldn't have Hillary be the nominee because she's a woman and there's so much sex. <laughs> That's true. I, I'm not sure I buy that thing about Bernie being a Jew. I'm sure there are a oh, lot of people who don't at care all. at all. But, uh... I think, I mean, yeah, Obama, people thought he was Muslim and he is black and his middle name is Hussein. Those are all things that are true, right? I mean, not that he's Muslim, but that people thought he was. The idea that this Jewish guy, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I obviously disagree with that, but I just also find it so hypocritical. Like, there's such an overt hypocrisy this time around where it's sexist to say that Hillary being a woman makes her a weak nominee, but it's totally fine and not anti-Semitic to say that Bernie being a Jew makes him a weak nominee. Well, um, I think there was, there was some covert anti-Semitism to some of the critiques of Bernie. I mean, his manner, you know, his... He's like, you know, 75-year-old Jewish guy from Brooklyn. He looks that way. He acts that way. He talks that way. And I love him for it. And obviously a lot of the hands, a lot of people loved him for it. I mean, that's one of the reasons, that was part of this, this, his authenticity shtick. It worked very, very well. And that's why he connected with people. This is a guy who's not lying to you. Uh, he's not, uh, you know, marketing consult consultants are not telling him what to say. He's saying things that come from the heart. He feels passionate about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it showed. And uh, that's where his being a Jewish guy from Brooklyn from the 1930s you know, really served him. What do you say to the other myth, which is that he was unelectable, the communism stuff would have gotten him, the Jewish stuff? Uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, it seems very likely he could have carried the demographic or a substantial portion of the demographic that Hillary had such a problem with. The you know, working class uh, white people liked him. Maybe not as many as would have liked Trump, but enough to have made a difference, perhaps. So I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but he certainly did awfully well in the primaries, better than anybody could have imagined. And uh, it would have been a fascinating campaign to see him fighting with Trump. Uh, it would have been about something. 
Um, there would have been some real, real issues raised there instead of the painfully stupid campaign we had instead. I was talking to someone who said that, you know, she's also Jewish, so we can say things like this. You can too, because you're honorary, but that, you know, Trump is like an honorary Jew in some types. He's like the worst Jew. Like, he's an archetype of a bad Jew, and Bernie is an archetype of the best Jew. And if they had run against each other, it would have been a fascinating Jew-on-Jew uh, election. Well, it would have been a certain, you know, New York personality thing. It, sure. Brooklyn versus Queens, too. Like, these guys in the cross-town yeah. bus arguing. Totally. And then Joel Benenson. Get out of here, Joel Benenson, <laughs> when he said that thing about Bernie being from... What do you say about him being from Brooklyn? I'll, I'll get it in later. But, of course, Joel Benenson is from Queens, so don't pretend like you're a neutral observer, Joel. The Battle of Newtown that's Creek, you know? So that's one... Okay, we got that myth. Okay, here's another one. That we are the ones who are fighting and relitigating the primary while the Clinton people want to move on. You know, one of the things that, that I actually think needs relitigating, or not relitigating, litigating, because it hasn't been litigated, is the Bernie bro myth. And where it comes from and that it's not actually true and it's hard for me to explain to people kind of hard but kind of not why it matters to me the point is like look we saw a very embedded coordinated campaign to smear someone as sexist and to smear his supporters as sexist through this narrative of the Bernie bro were there sexist Sanders supporters yes were there uh, sexist Hillary supporters, yes. Were there anti-Semitic Hillary supporters? Yes. But to me, it's like if we don't debunk that and the creation of it, and we can point to, you know, Carl Bayer and Glenn Greenwald did really good work on this stuff, how it was created out of like three things that people said. One of them was made up and one of them was a woman talking about Hillary Clinton. But if we don't call that stuff out, it'll just carry on into 2017, which I think is dangerous. And then what happens is whenever you have a real progressive champion who could actually beat someone like Donald Trump, they will use these tactics. So what do you say? I mean, do you think that that's uh, fair, what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I can't. That's a leading question. No, I'll, I, give you the, yes. I'll give you the yes, example. Counselor. This will be better prompt. So on the 26th, this woman, Cara Calavera, tweeted, now that I've watched most of the Democratic men and Bernie Sanders bash Hillary post-election, I'm convinced the left has a sexism problem. And I was like, that name looks familiar. Oh, this is why. Because in May, on May 15th, she tweeted, Wendell Pierce just got arrested for something all of us have wanted to do for six months. Wendell Pierce is the very talented actor from Treme and The Wire, Bunk from The Wire, who was a big Clinton supporter and unfortunately got into a fight with a black female Sanders supporter and attacked her physically and was arrested for this. You may have heard of it. I don't, did you hear about this? I vaguely passed me by. Vaguely, right. Can you, can you imagine if this had been done by a Sanders supporter to a Clinton supporter. I mean, it would be front page news and people definitely would have said he had to resign. There would have been un, you know, precedent in calls for him to resign. So I tweeted that and people are like, oh, wow. Yeah, she tweeted that seven months ago and she apologized and deleted it immediately. I love the, vir it's so virtuous to do damage control. Yes. Big ups to you. But to me, it's like, no, this is still important and I'm trying to explain things explain to people why they're why it's important to still talk about this do you have any insights well i think it's, it's very important to talk about it uh, the smears against sanders as being a sexist were just utterly baseless the man's record on uh every kind of women's related issue is, is sterling you know it's just uh and and and, and he never said abortion should be rare like hillary did uh it's we just give agency to people <laughs> Yes, one, one's, one's genitals speak. Only the genitals speak. Um, if if yeah, the genitals could speak. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's just so ridiculous, this, this stuff. Um, it was excruciating during the campaign to have to put up with this nonsense. It was clear that they had no argument in Hillary's favor. Uh, the, the absence of arguments for her candidacy throughout the campaign it was just remarkable uh, cons and consistent. And here we are going through this stuff again. Uh, and the idea that there's something sexist about trying to understand why Hillary lost is insane. There is just no way that Donald Trump should have won. If you lose to Donald Trump, and again, she won the popular vote, but she's not going to be president, so she lost. If you lose she gets Donald that because Gore was the last person who... Yeah, but this is the right. widest discrepancy between the electoral vote and the popular vote in American history. And then she, you know, this whole faithless elector thing, she actually lost more electoral uh, votes than anybody, I think, also in electoral history. So, you know, just one disaster after another. It shouldn't have happened. So if you lose to somebody, a comical and dangerous character like Donald Trump, then you really do need to ask yourself some serious questions and stop saying, 
you're sexist for asking those questions. That's evasive and juvenile. And if you were, you know, if you had a shrink, your shrink would, you know, call you on the carpet for not really confronting the serious issues about your life. That's good. I like that prescription from Dr. Henwood. <laughs> oh, the, femi the pseudo-feminists are going to have a field day with that. You're pathologizing us. I'll pathologize you guys. I'll take that. I'll take the hit for that. <laughs> I, I think we really need to uh, get serious about how we're going to fight the lunacy and viciousness that's about to descend upon us. Uh, and we can't fight that unless we understand how we got here. And uh, the unwillingness to uh, ask those questions uh, is, um, it's really, you know, if you, if you care about Muslims, about gay people, about women, about transgender people, all people who um, should rightfully be afraid of approaching uh, the Donald Trump years, uh, immigrants, uh, like there are just so many people who are going to get really badly mistreated, and not just by the government. If you're a woman, uh, if you're a gay person, if you're a transgender, if you're an immigrant, if you're Muslim, you're facing a really frightful prospect of a Donald Trump presidency, and not just because of state action, but by all these private bigoted lunatics who feel now licensed to commit hate crimes and harass people in petty ways in the street. It's very, very bad news. And if you care about those people, and you should, then you should really try to understand why Donald Trump won the election. And if you want to shield Hillary Clinton and, as a candidate and uh, the Democratic Party as an institution from that kind of scrutiny, you're not doing any favors to the people you claim to be representing. You're really just hurting them in the long run. That's great. So how could that, what would that be as a New Year's resolution? Let's frame it as a New Year's resolution. A New Year's resolution for Clintonites. A good long round of Maoist self-criticism, I think, is what they need. And they'll do it. You know it. They love that stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I think they'll probably, well, David Brock is going to have a, uh, a meeting with his uh, funders over uh, Inauguration Weekend. Uh, so it's going to be the billionaires who are going to try to figure out what went wrong. Uh, so, oh, yeah. that'll be good. He's, yeah, he's, that'll, that'll he, be full of insight and full of uh, rich possibility for the future. And so do you have like a New Year's resolution for him? <laughs> for Hillary? Anyone? You can throw, throw him out. Uh, well, I would, she would never do it, but it'd be nice to have Hillary do a serious mea culpa, a really serious self-examination. David Brock should just cut off all his hair and enter a, a convent or something. I don't know what I don't know what convent. Not, not a convent. I, I meant a monastery. I'm, I'm, I committed yeah. a gender crime. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. You were just presenting it as the construct that it is. You refuse to accept the binary. Okay. I got yes, what you're doing. Yes, that's, that's good. Um, yeah, I don't wish that on any religious um, housing establishment. Any resolutions for us for the for the left? Well, we you know we need really to get together, uh, and I just feel an urge to bond together uh, socially and politically and hang together uh, and really redevelop all these notions of solidarity, uh, you know, on a kind of large abstract political level, but also on a very personal level, because these times will be um, pretty terrible. But if we play it right, if we uh, show that we have some answers that the mainstream doesn't, then, you know, maybe we could, something good could come out of it. Thank you so much, Doug Henwood, and you can hear his show. Check him out on my show. We have great episodes with him. We're about to release some bonus content of him and his intellectual mentor and happens to be spouse, Liza Featherstone. And get his book, My Turn. Thanks. Thanks, Katie. Um, so Doug and I talk about the blame game. And you know what, Gabe? I got to say something. Bernie could have won. You know, a lot, of a lot of people are saying that now. A, a lot of people are saying that. And you know what? It's not just about rubbing salt into the wounds of our enemies. There's some of that. <laughs> Although there is something satisfying yeah, about there is. seeing uh, very smug people who didn't do anything to reach out to uh, large portions of the electorate. Mm -hmm. There is. And the ones who told us that they didn't need us, um, you know, or told people who weren't convinced whether or not they were going to vote for Hillary that they didn't need them, people who are considering voting third party, that. People who who gave off the air of being uh, mature and uh, somehow, you know, realists. Right. The realists that told us that we all had to drift towards the center. Right. But um, really just uh, you can't how you, you can't do that. And we were people who were pushing voting for um, Hillary in swing states. Yeah. That's Gabe and I did that a lot on the show. <laughs> we had Becky Bond. Becky Bond was popular vote. Yeah. Um. So... But it's also important because I've, I found that the same people who keep saying stop relitigating the primary, get over it, look forward, they're the same exact people who look back and blame people. I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, you have people 
blaming the wrong people. So they blame third party. They blame Jill Stein. They blame the media. They blame James Comey. They blame blame the left. You know what would make sense? You could blame the left if somehow we had made a human chain or fence around whatever the airport in Wisconsin is so she couldn't get to Wisconsin. <laughs> like that would make sense. You know what I mean? Right. Because she, right. didn't, she didn't even campaign there. So I, I keep thinking of the, yeah, sure, blame us. Um, and people appreciate it when a politician shows up into their hometown. Shop, yeah. I didn't even like, I didn't know Jill Stein very well. I didn't know her platform until she came on to our show. Our show and she did the live show. And I'll tell you what, fell in love with the lady. She's very charming, because right? Because she came and personally was there for me. And in the same way, oh, good point. Any uh, uh, that's what politicians have to do. You have to be out there. You have to be shaking hands. You have to be kissing babies. And uh, for all of Trump's faults, one thing that as an entertainer I can admire is that he he was on tour. He was oh on a God. whirlwind he was, tour. Yeah. He was given speeches all over the country. He was doing the thing that politicians are supposed to do. And this isn't me saying anything positive about him other than that is that's the blueprint for success. Totally. He looks like he feels people's pain, whether or not he does. He does look like he does. I mean, um, and he looks like he cares. I mean, and this is people. Like, oh, you Trump lover. I'm not a Trump lover. But you know what I have to say? Also, I'm very disturbed. We you know, we spoke to Susie Weissman a little about the Russia stuff. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this. Trump um, tweeted something, I think, Friday. And a lot of people are saying that what he treated, what he tweeted was treason. And it was the following. Great move on delay by V. Putin. I always knew he was very smart. And they're saying that this is like aiding and abetting the enemy. Now, by the way, the great move that Putin did that Donald Trump was giving him props for was not retaliating against Amer U.S. diplomats in Russia. So just to, to back up a little bit, this is something we like. The U.S. government, right, when I say we. Like, yeah. the U.S. government likes that, this. That's our team. Yes, right? So, like, like all the, all, you know, Obama, everyone, McCain, everyone should be happy that nothing's happening to our ambassadors in Russia, right? And people are up in arms. We don't want tweet. our ambassadors to get poisoned with some radioactive <laughs> yeah, isotopes. Exactly. And yeah. that's something that can happen could, in Russia. It could. It's a Russia thing. We don't want them to get, you know, th put in a in a in a theater and then have nerve gas poured it's into ridiculous. the theater uh while they're there watching a movie. Watching some Chekhov or whatever. Well, uh, yeah, Cherry Tree. Tolstoy. Yeah, nice. Wow, nice ref. I would like to live in a world where the worst thing that Donald Trump does is tweet this. Is like tweet props to Vladimir Putin for not being retaliatory. Yeah. God forbid that's the thing that we need to. That's what the resistance has to be about. Just tweeting uh, foreign leaders all over the place when whenever they're not bloodthirsty. Yeah, exactly. He should do yeah. that. Like, good job. Uh, or else? Like, yeah. good job uh, of Filipino president for not killing a bunch of drug uh, yeah. addicts. Yeah. Great what job. Treason. Turning treason. the other cheek. Yeah. But um, I like your soft power. Yeah, it's so bizarre. And Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC is like, the only reason it's not treason is because we're not at war with Russia. I'm like, oh, to, how unfortunate. If only we were at war with Russia. And he compared it to Nixon. There were just these revelations that Nixon, that, that Johnson knew that Nixon had sabotaged peace talks negotiations in, in Vietnam in 68. So he extended the war and many, many more people died and stuff. But like Lawrence O'Donnell was comparing that to this tweet. Right. You're you know, the the boy who cries wolf thing, right? Like people are not gonna respond to the actual emergencies. It's like antibiotics. You get immune, right? You take if you abuse antibiotics, yeah. You get you your resistance builds up and then you can't when you're gonna if you we, abuse antibiotics for like a, a cold, right? Then when you have a real fatal infection. We're normalizing yes, uh, a, a hysterical approach to every utterance that Trump right. makes so that when he when he tweets out time to put him in camps, uh, everyone will be asleep. Right. We'll be immune to it. Right. Yes. Or not even the thing is, don't fall for this tweeting stuff. This is theater. Look at the policies. I mean, I guess it's good to you think Joe Schmo cares about this. D is Joe Schmo on Twitter? No, he's not. That's the other <laughs> thing. These people are so up there. You know what? Um, so also, people, when they are responding to uh, accusations of being Kremlin cheerleaders, here's an, a new rule. You cannot respond to accusations of being Kremlin cheerleaders by swearing and insisting that you're not a communist. Russia has not been communist for quite a, some time now. Um, 
But uh, what's it now? Like a petrol oligarchy? Yeah, I think you say oligarchy, like um, like Bernie does. The the reason that I think the the Bernie would have won thing is relevant is because we still see this primary being relitigated in the DNC chair competition. People who want Keith Ellison, that's Team Bernie, and people who want Perez, that's Team Clinton, and Team Obama, actually, to be fair. Um, we got Obama saying that he could have won, by the way. You saw that. Obama could have won if he won for a third term. Uh-huh. And what was great about that is Obama's basically saying, he's not saying his policies are different. He's basically saying, like, I sell it better. Well, he's he a better salesman. He, he has is. the unique charisma. He does, just like Bill Clinton. They both sell it better. Yeah. They sell it better than Hillary Clinton. That's a big difference. Well, it's interesting, like, even at our live show, when whenever I, I brought up that uh, Obama uh, has deported more people, right. has the drone war, and that I'm not a huge fan, uh, there's this sentimentality around him. Like, people still have warm feelings towards him, regardless of what he has done uh, on paper because of how he sounds when he speaks. Right. You know, his his speeches are heartwarming. But no, they are. The He's reality a great, yeah. is not that heartwarming no so and the danger of saying that and then you get these people who respond like no bernie couldn't have won he was a socialist jew and there was too much oppo research on him it's but the research is not is like pathetic we've seen it is it the 50s is it just a bunch of like white people with buzz cuts that hate socialism and they blew their wad with obama on that that's the other thing yeah like that's who they said was a socialist and people really like obama like um, we were listening to uh, Keeping It 1600 the other day. Keeping It 1600 is four former aides to President Obama, John Favreau, Dan Pfeffer, John Lovett, and Tommy Victor, host a biweekly ringer podcasts to discuss the political world, analyze the Trump presidency, and welcome commentary from journalists and politicians. Um, and, of course, John Favreau was the one who made fun of, in WikiLeaks, we saw that he made fun of uh, economic anxiety. That's right. And they actually had some interesting observations, one of which was actually that as much as the as people are fed up with the government, for some reason, they still have a soft spot for Obama. Mm -hmm. But they finally said, you know, some people have come forward, some people who are insistent, insistent, insistent that um, that Bernie wasn't electable or at least they were very emphatic that Hillary had to be the nominee. They've come fo around and said, you know what, Bernie could have won. So we want to give these people some props to Ray. Ture and I have spoken. We're trying to get him on the show. We're, we're in talks. We're in negotiations. Hopefully <laughs> we won't have a Nixon sabotage it. Um, but Ture is someone who did that. And um, John Favreau. So what did you think of the Keeping It 1600? Well, those guys are so smart. And um, and, I, and I've always enjoyed listening to them. But uh, they were, during uh, the campaign, very smug and were the stereotype of coastal elites and mm -hmm. they make fun of it themselves and it was great to finally hear them um admit that uh, bernie could could have won and it, it felt like they were eating like eating crow mm -hmm. while they were saying it um and uh and i had a lot of really smart friends that were like that's the one political show i listened to and uh that the rude awakening on the day after the election and it seemed like everything that but one thing that they brought up is they, that they were working with Obama on his campaign when he was campaigning against Hillary. They knew all of her weaknesses. They knew how unlikable she was. They knew exactly how they would have attacked her and what her uh, weak points were. And yet they still um, were in denial that those weak points would be in existence just four years later. Right. Or what thinking. was it? Eight years later. Yeah, eight years later. Yeah, and these people just come back at you with 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 such certitude. That's the thing. Like, no, it's not. It's on you to prove to us that Bernie couldn't have won. We have the polls that show that he did better against Trump. Uh, he had more young people energized to go vote. Uh, more independence. He had in in uh, with Bernie. There was a clear message. Yes, and the message. Uh, was reiterated time and time again. We need to de demolish these myths because if we don't demolish them, then the next time we have a much better progressive person who maybe happens to be a white man, he'll be smeared. And we need to know that the people who smeared Bernie Sanders are not to be trusted. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it's true. I'm saying don't look at the chip, look at the guacamole. Ooh, what do you mean? Keep going. The chip is the delivery system, right? Look at the guacamole, though. What's what's the policy? Yeah, but you know what's funny? Bernie, people love the chip. They loved his. I mean, lots I think of you love you love you love. No, the chip. I do. But I think the I think there was some Jew on Jew love there. Yeah, sure. You know, but it was your lane, political lane. For me, I, I you know I liked him because I like crumpy old men. Yeah, I like but Larry I think David. people like that. I'm serious. Like I know the. 
I mean, the thing is that so many non-Jews liked him. That's the thing. Like, why did he appeal to people in the Midwest? He's not a Rust right. Belt guy. But he was totally... Because people like that he and Trump both seemed like outsiders. Yeah. They both seemed like they were willing to say the things that other people weren't willing to say. And liberals are so out of touch that they see this as a weakness, that they, that he appealed to angry white men. I've said this before, but let's just... I just want to go through quickly the top 10... Let's see how many we got. I'll put the number in later. But the top uh, ideas that have to be have to go out with 2016. I'm so done with them. And you, anyone who uses it, who says thing, the following things should be embarrassed because they don't make sense, okay? No more. New rule. Can I say new rule? Because I used to write about new rules before Bill Maher did. Are you going to put a hashtag new rule and have it be like a Twitter thing? Well, I just, you know, Bill Maher does that on um, Real Time with Bill Maher. I don't watch Bill Maher. Well, he does. He goes, new rule. And I used to do that. And I'm not saying he stole it from me, but I am saying, can I still use it if I had it in writing? Like I think I did in Huffington Post before he did it. I can, right? New rule. You can no longer pretend that economic anxiety is totally unrelated to racism, bigotry, and xenophobia. New rule. You can no longer pretend that engaging people who aren't woke is catering to racism or wins elections. New rule. It's not a weakness to resonate among angry white men. It's a strength. You know why? If you're a progressive and you're giving an anti- xenophobia message that's a good thing these people literally want these people like liberal dems and paul krugman who blame bernie sanders for appealing to angry white men what do they want they want just trump to appeal to these angry white men do they realize what happens right well you look at uh like uh we'll take weimar germany right yeah in the, during the Weimar, uh, there was the economic uncertainty. Everybody's freaking out. Everyone's unemployed. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of uh, people looking for exactly. any alternative. And uh, the guys that showed up with the, with the clear policy and, uh, and the nice suits, they, they got everybody. Can you imagine if, if, if like the social justice warriors and the woke Hillaryites were around during Weimar Germany, they'd be like, it's not on me to prove to you. If you don't dislike Hillary... I mean, sorry. Whoa. Oh, my God. No, it's not on me to prove why Hitler's bad. If you don't already like d- dislike Hitler, then that's on you. Or like, uh, what else would they say? Like, whatever. You guys, are they're going to be demographically irrelevant anyway. We don't need them. Can you imagine? Right. Demographically irrelevant. I mean, that's, uh, I don't have time for that. We we have too Who's much got time. time. Exactly. We have too much it's too long. Um, and unless people think, again, people saying that look, we got to look forward, it's not time to look back, that's fine. But the only problem is that Donna Brazile, for instance, is putting together a war room to fight against Trump, right? According to The Hill, the DNC announced a new round of hires on Tuesday, including several former campaign staffers for Hillary Clinton as it builds out a war room, quote unquote, to do political battle with President-elect Donald Trump. So anybody that ha- was working for Hillary... Who lost, reminder. Uh, I don't know if they learned their lesson. No. And so why would you double down on a team full of losers? Yeah, basically, not the two... <laughs> if anything, they it, should yeah. go and try to cherry-pick anybody who was apolitically working on Trump's team... And everybody who was on Bernie's campaign. Right. Kellyanne Conway would be great. She they might as well. More. Look, like uh, what? Hiring ex-Hillary staffers is like hiring ex-Lincoln Chafee staffers. Oh, my like God. Just, totally. Granite. It's like when a, when a boxer like needs to make a comeback and they get some tomato can, just like sad sack, beat up brawler right. to come in and just get knocked out in the first round. That's what like anybody who worked for Hillary is, is going to be like. So why... They, none of them deserve jobs. I know. I, I mean, I feel like that should be like a red flag. Like, oh, we really liked your resume. The only problem is we saw that you work for Hillary Clinton. But besides that, we just want you to know we think you have a very stellar resume. That was the only reason that you, we're not going to hire you. You're great. You you're guys, great. You guys were in the front of the class yeah. the whole time. Yeah, no, not and, so, yeah. Uh, and, you're, and you're in the bubble. So, the, yeah, the, so they're supporting. They're, here's who the people are that they hired. Um the DNC is beefing up its communications and opposition research shop under interim chairwoman Donna Brazile, who said that the new staff's priorities will be to, quote, support an independent and bipartisan congressional investigation of Russia's unprecedented interference in the 2016 election. Take on the incoming Trump administration and protect President Obama's legacy. 
end quote. And so some of the people being hired, uh, the person to lead that effort as interim communications director will be John Neffinger, a veteran Democratic strategist who will take leave of absence from the nonprofit liberal strategy firm Franklin Forum. Beneath Neffinger will be two veterans of Clinton's campaign. Clinton's former rapid response director, Zach Picanis, will act as senior advisor to the DNC and will run the war room. Yeah, because when I think of the Clinton rapid response team, I think of nothing. Those are the guys that changed your slogan like every week? Yeah, what did they—I mean, you know who they should hire, these people, is is Mike um, Casca, who was Bernie's rapid response team— well, Bernie's rapid response person, and he was the one who did that great thing when 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 Hillary was like, "Where is my opponent?" I I get a bit, and I get a bit of a chuckle every time I think of my opponent. I talk about health care. Where was he when I passed health care? And then Bob Casca found the link, yeah, to the video of her literally standing in front of Bernie Sanders and thanking him for supporting her battle in health care, <laughs> and he tweeted literally right behind you. So that's a good rapid response. Um. So we got Zach on the team, then former Clinton's uh, campaign spokeswoman and Adrian Watson. She'll be the na- the national press secretary. Watson's also worked as communications director for Correct the Record, a Clinton-aligned super PAC. Oh my God, Collect the Record. That is a David Brock run, evil, um, part of the evil empire of Schmear, uh-huh. the evil Schmear empire that literally trolled everyone online. Like the Clinton campaign, th- this pack. Put tons, put more money, I think, into this schmear factory than they did into like Latino voter outreach. What did, did they just astroturf and like have a whole bunch of trolls and bots? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Attacking people on Facebook. Yep. On Twitter, really, was where they really okay. were. Yeah. Um, and then the DNC has also announced on Tuesday that it's promote that it had promoted Tessa Simmons to digital director for the War Room. Um, I don't know who she is, but. Um, during the 2016 campaign, these operative operatives focus heavily on digging up and driving negative storylines about Trump. A skill Brazil said will serve the DNC as serve the DNC well as it works to quote hold Donald Trump's feet to the fire as he forms his new government. End quote. Wait a second, it didn't work during the election, right? So they're not offering a positive, progressive uh, like right. vision of the future. They are talking about um, making fun of or uh, saying that they're better than. Donald Trump and none of that that was Hillary's entire yeah. campaign was don't vote for him because I'm better than him. They're or, lit- yeah, they're literally uh, rinse and repeating the failed strategy. But I'm just so surprised that they're literally like don't they get they're so out of touch that they don't even get that for appearances sake. Like what they should be is having nobodies who lived underground and were behind the scenes trained by these people hide the fact that they were trained by these people so that they can sabotage the DNC, which they will, but at least it won't look like they're the same as the last time. Right. Like, don't these people get the optics of putting the losing team in charge of the new DNC? Am I... I I feel like I'm living in the Twilight Zone again. Yeah. Like, you know what? Here's the thing. We learn from our mistakes. And to show you that we learned from our mistakes, we're going to put the exact same people. I mean, if you're not going to if you're going if you're not going to change the people, you should at least change the name of the party. Yeah, call it something else, or give them pseudonyms, give them face job, facelifts, like Abby Hoffman changes face, let him go underground for a day, come back up with different faces, different names, pretend that they're different. Yeah. Can we DNC? You should hire me and Gabe to just teach you how to be effective um, liars. Totally. I mean, you can just change your change your Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah. Put I mean, a new avatar up. Why are they doing this? They're like, you guys, we're really taking a look inside. We're doing a lot of introspection and we've come to the conclusion that we did everything right. So we're going to repeat it. In fact, you know what? Well, they weren't the ones that, are, that were wrong. It was the voters that were wrong. It's true. The voters got it wrong. Yeah, they really messed up. I can't believe it. Um, this was the first election ever where it was not on on the candidate, not on the nominees to win the voters. It was on the voters to figure out why they <laughs> need to vote for the nominee. Yeah, that's good, right? By the way, Hillary's going to um, the inauguration. That's the resistance. You know, everyone talks about her being in the resistance, like out, underground. Out in the, underground. I imagine her like doing push-ups and like training and wearing like war paint. War like what is it? War paint. 
Well, I mean, the, you, she might wear war paint. Wear, I mean, wear war point. Going yeah. into the resistance, the underground, I think of like V, where the aliens take over right. and, and they, they're all reptiles under their skin. And she's like one of the humans fighting against the reptiles, overlords. Or maybe you're talking about like the, um, the, uh, the occupied French and you might have the, um, the resistance there that's sort of, you know, conspiring against the Vichy government. Or you have the resistance like the uh, Algerians in battle for right. Algiers who are, you know. So which against... one do we think it is? It, uh, well, I think when, when you're deciding to attend the inauguration for a photo op, you're not in either any of those. I like that. Uh, you know what's cool? I think I, I think that Hillary Clinton actually wore the same shirt that she wore uh, to Donald Trump's wedding that she did to a debate. So I think she should wear that shirt when she goes to the inauguration. Because I joke that she should just wear whatever shirt she wore to whatever outfit she wore to the, his wedding. Anyway, someone tweeted. So I wrote, I actually think Hillary should just wear whatever she wore to Donald Trump's wedding to the inauguration. Someone wrote, I think she should dress as Sarah Connors from The Terminator. Hashtag the resistance. <laughs> Oi. All right. Thanks, guys. See you next week. See you at our live show next week. <laughs>